We're continuing our series on vision, going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul is helping us to actually see things that we normally wouldn't see, to, to give us insight into what God has done and is doing and wants to do through his people. His people have become a new family, a single humanity, as he says in chapter 2, a one humanity in Christ so that it's no longer different ethnicities. It's not the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the single humanity in Christ. And if we could embrace that idea, how things could change in our society and in our world. And recently, as Revel was talking about his car incident, recently we got into a little fender bender and we had to take one of our cars into the shop and it's there now getting fixed. And so we got a rental because that's part of our insurance. And as we went to the rental place, they had a couple of cars we could choose from. And one was a Chrysler something. I don't know. Chrysler's all are the same, right? It's kind of like Chrysler thing. It was this mid-sized sedan. And then they had a Volvo SUV that just looked nice. And so they said, well, which car would you like? And we said, we'd like that one. And so we we got that car, and this car is great. It's got leather seats. It's just really sweet. It's smooth. And you know, when you get a new car, even though this isn't our car, it feels like a new car. When you get a new car, you just want to drive it. I knew I had things to do today, but it's like, you need me to go to the store? I'll go to the store. You know, I, I just want to get in the car, and I just want to drive. You, you get that car, and you want to experience it. Oh, it comes with the manual and all those things, but I don't want to read the manual. I just want to drive it because it's that experience, you know, and you, you get to enjoy all the, the things about that car. And it's got seat warmers, which I really don't need right now, but it's just nice to know that they're there in case there's a cold spill in, in June. You know, it's going to happen. And so you enjoy those things. And really, that's kind of what has been happening through the book of Ephesians. Paul has taken on this just incredible journey of explaining to us just how the love of God is beyond our knowledge, that we might experience this, you know, that which is higher than we can experience and deeper than we understand, and that all these things he is telling us to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is working in us. It's like getting in that car and just experiencing it. I'm just driving. I'm just enjoying this life that now God has given me. But then, you know, when you have that car for a while and all of a sudden that check engine light comes on or that, you know, red oil pan. It always reminds me of Aladdin, but no genie comes out of this lamp. You know, it's like, okay, once you see those lights come on or something happens, you hear a noise then you have to go to the manual. Then you have to take it in and get someone who actually knows the more intricate parts of what makes a car tick to fix what's going on. 
And the same thing's true in our life. Yeah, you get to drive, you get to experience the immeasurable love that God has, but then you have to start to know, you have to start to grow, you have to start doing more than just living by an experience, that you have to have an intentional drive to want to know not only God, but what God wants for me. And so Paul turns the corner in chapter 4, and that's where we're at right now, in Ephesians chapter 4. And as he, he turns this corner, he, he starts to open up the manual a little bit and give us some practical things that we can do to help us check the manual and see how our lives are running, to see what's going on. And, and let's read the first few verses. It says, As a prisoner... For the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let's stop there. First, he starts with as a prisoner. Okay. All right, great. Thanks, Paul. Now you put guilt. Okay, because you're a prisoner and I'm free. And as a prisoner, and I, I don't think this is unintentional. I think what Paul is trying to do is say, you know what I have done for the gospel. You know the risk I have taken. You know what it has cost me. And so as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, in this position, give me some credibility. Because in this position, I urge you, and then listen to this word, to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Wow. To live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And when he talks about calling, he isn't referring to the specific calling or a vocation you might have. It's not like, well, I'm calling you to be a teacher or to run a small business or to start a nonprofit. It's really a more general sense what he's trying to do. He's referring to something basic and it's calling us to, to the gospel itself. It's summoning the people who believe in Jesus to rise to the calling of what it means to be a follower of his, to be a follower of the king and to give him our complete, undivided allegiance for the rest of our lives. That's the calling he's talking about. He's not talking about a specific road you're supposed to follow. He's talking about our lives as a whole, that we would live worthy of the calling that we have received. And a key part of this calling is our hope. It is the Christian hope, which works like this. Because Jesus has conquered death itself, all who give him their allegiance are assured the same victory, that it will be theirs just as it is his. This is the calling to which we live up to. And so we get to enjoy the, the spoils, if you will, of the war, the battle that he has won, but it requires our allegiance to him. And that's living worthy of that. We, we give ourselves completely to this. 
at every moment in every decision with every word action that we are aware of we are to follow this king this messiah we are to yield our lives to him we are to recognize his lordship over us and that word lordship isn't one we use it's not something common in our language but it really is an important understanding that he desires to have a precedent life an impression in ours that our lives are to be so yielded to his desires that they are inseparable that the will of god now is our will as well that what god wants is now what we want and this is what we're supposed to live up to I love that Paul says he, he's asking us to think about how we are to live. And some translations say that we would walk in a way worthy. And I like that metaphor, walk. Because the idea of walking is one of a journey. It's not something that's completed, right? If you're walking, you're not done because you're moving. You're, you're going somewhere. And so I like the idea of walk because it's a, it's a spiritual journey. Walk because you're not there yet. It's a process. It's something that you're involved in. Walk because God walks through the world and asks us to join him in this journey. And for Paul, it was meant to, to give hands and, and feet to our spirituality. It was to involve us in this journey with the living God. And so that we would walk in a way worthy, that we would journey with the God, that we would not just see it as something that, okay, I did something, I, I gave my money, I put in my time. No, I'm on a journey with. That you would walk in a way, that you would live in a way, that you would venture with the living God in such a way that it affects everything that we do. And then he says this word worthy, and I don't like that word. It's there, I know, I got to get used to it, right? But I don't like the idea that it sounds like deserving, because that's not what he's talking about. It's not about a performance that is worthy. It's not like, well, you have to do enough so that it's good enough for God, you know, to be able to sit with him, to be able to journey with him. Actually, the Greek word translated for worthy literally means to break down the scale. It means to bring them down so the balance is level. And so, you know, the way they would weigh how something is worth, they would put whatever it is, you know, you got your vegetables on the scale here, and then you put the gold, however much gold it is, to bring it down there. And the idea of worthy is, it's as if someone's taking a hand and just putting it down and saying, I'm making it even. I want you to live in a way so that it's equivalent or walk that is consistent. It's in line with. So don't think it's something that I have to earn God's favor. It's I want to walk in a way that's inconsistent. I want to bring this life I'm living to the same level as the God I'm living it for. I want them to be in union with one another. I want them to be consistent. I, I want there to be this equivalence between the God I believe in 
and the walk I'm living. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we desire? Isn't that what we appreciate when we see in people? When we see someone who's actually living a life consistent with what they say they believe? And isn't it frustrating and doesn't it make you angry when you see someone who's not living that? When you see someone who's all about God, but they're just idiots, right? You guys know those people. Man, they know the Bible, but they're jerks. They're mean. They're awful. They're not compassionate. You go out to eat with them and they're rude to the waitress. You know, they they think the world owes them a favor and there's not a consistency with what they say they believe or the God they say they believe in and if they're with their life. And so by our choices, we can adopt a, a lifestyle that's consistent with our inner experience with God. That's what it is to live worthy. I'm, I'm going to make choices that help bring this scale so that it's in line. So people say this belief and this life they're together. It's not about being good enough. It's about walking with God and bringing that scale to a level place, making it a reality in our lives. He goes on in verse two and he says, be completely humble and gentle. I I like that. Be completely humble and gentle. And he goes on, make Bearing with one another, or wait, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul shows us what that kind of lifestyle looks like. You want to be consistent, walk with God, then this is what it looks like. You're going to be completely humble. You're going to be gentle. You're going to learn how to use your phone. No, I'm just kidding. You're going to be patient. You're, you're going to bear with one another as they learn how to use their phone. Um, it, it's really connecting the dots of this life that we want to live. He's showing us that there's a short list that we are to adopt in our lives. And he starts with being humble. The idea of humility It's an interesting because humility is not just an accurate assessment of myself or not just knowing how broken I am or or seeing a low image of myself. That's, That's not really humility. But what humility is, is recognizing the value of the other person. You see, if I see someone else as valuable... It puts me in the right place. That's humility. We hear from Scripture that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. Humbled himself. What did did he do? What did he humble himself to? He made himself lower and elevated our worth more than his own life. And so this idea of being humble is recognizing the value of others, knowing God uses them, their their gifts, and that those things are to be a work even for me. 
You see, it's hard to receive something from someone if you don't value them. If you're having an argument with someone, a disagreement, and you see things one way, and if you look at that person just saying, you know what, they don't know what they're talking about, they're ignorant, they're, they're just foolish. If you have a mindset like that, you will not receive anything from that person because you're demeaning them. But if you are completely humble, you will actually see that person as someone that is of value and be able to esteem them as a person of importance. And now you give their voice credibility. It doesn't mean you agree with them, but now you are able to at least hear them. And more importantly, you are able to respect them. You know, there, there is so much controversy in the, the news right now. Whether it's, you know, the, the gay uh, have the right to marry now and, you know, there are people, I mean, your Facebook is exploding. You know, it's just these people are against, these people are for, and everyone's posting articles about whatever it is. What we are really called to do are to value people. We are to care about people, and it doesn't matter where the person is. If you're a person who believes this is legitimate, you need to value the people who have a problem with it. And if you are the people who say this is a problem, you need to value the people who see this as something that is beneficial. It's more than the, the situation itself. It's valuing the people and putting yourself into a place that even though I disagree with you, I value you as a person of importance i love you as a person who god loves and i give you that value that's humility and that disarms a lot of the problems that arise with disagreements when we value someone that means we see them as important we acknowledge them that other self and then he, he says gentleness. These go so well together. I have to remind myself of this. I have to remind myself of other people's wounds. Because I'm gentle when I am considerate of another person's feelings. Oftentimes when I'm doing the dog training, I'll go into a home and someone will say, well, we have a dog and this dog has been abused. We rescued the dog, and the dog's been abused, and you walk near the dog, and the dog cowers, and it's frightened, and it's like not sure if you're going to hit it or whatever it's going on. Well, if I were to just go, okay, I'll deal with this, and I would just come down heavy on the dog, poor dog would be traumatized. I have to be aware of that animal's wounds, that someone has been cruel to that dog, that someone has beaten that dog, because if I'm not aware of that, then I could cause more damage than good. I have to cater to the needs. And gentleness is being aware of the wounds in others and not just focusing on ourselves. And then he talks about be patient. Do I really need to define this one? Patience. Let's just say it's a maturity factor. Patience is really about maturing. You know, when something that is developing, if it's a wine that needs to mature, you have to wait till it's proper. 
Same thing with cookies in the oven, right? Or, or something you have to bake and you can't, man, it smells good. Quick, get them out. Let's eat them. They're not ready. You have to wait till it matures and develops. You see, they've done studies and they know that the frontal lobe of our brains, they don't fully develop and become responsible and learning and dealing with delayed gratification until late in the teen years or early 20s. Those, do you guys remember when you were a teenager how difficult it was to wait for anything? Maybe you have teenagers and you know they don't wait for anything. There, there is a part of our brain that is not quite developed and so that delayed gratification is just so hard and you say, hey, just settle down, just wait. You'll get to go next week. I can't go next week. I got to do it now. Why do you have to do it now? They don't know. It's just urgent. You see, patience is actually maturing. It's actually kind of like our brains developing and be able to deal with that delayed gratification. We'll have to be patient when we're going to really grow up. Delayed gratification is an important lesson to learn, especially in our relationships with one another. We have to recognize those things. And then... Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is another way of saying tolerant. Accepting others. Paul adds the factor in love. And it's not without importance. Because you all know what it's like to do something not in love. You know, when you say, okay, tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. You know, say it like you mean it. Sorry. You know, it's like, okay, it needs to be with the right character, the right attitude. And so if you're going to be tolerant of someone, do it because you love them, not because I have to. God says I have to be patient. I got to tolerate you. So, okay, I tolerate you. No, it's supposed to be again because you actually care. Okay, we have to see that. It must be real, and to be real, it must be rooted and grounded in love. Ephesians 3.17, Paul saw the importance of that. He, He talked about that where he tells us that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. It's got to have the right soil if it's going to grow up to something good, and that soil's got to be love. If we're going to be tolerant, if we're going to be patient, if we're going to bear with someone, it's got to be because we care about them, not because we have to. It makes all the difference, and people can see that. You you can't create this kind of unity. Okay, This is something that has to develop. Paul saw that the spiritual community was something not visible, that the unity of, of the spirit needed to be a part of this new family of God. It had to be something that was evident in it. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you have love one for another, this is something, this is the underlining oneness that is supposed to be a part of that. And he spells that out in the next few verses. We can't create unity, make it happen. Here, I'm going to tell you what to do to make yourselves 
care about each other. It has to be something born within us, and that's the need we have for God to create within us that new heart, a clean heart, to, to change our attitude and our character. When people try it, it always looks artificial, it looks superficial. We can't create it, but we can sure destroy it. And that's what Paul warns us not to do. This unity is held together in the bond of peace. And he recognizes that love is the perfect bond of unity. In Colossians 3.14, Paul says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's what we need. He recognizes over all the virtues, put on love. To walk in this Christian spirituality, if you will, it never requires us to fake it. Well, I don't really love them, but I'll smile. Hi, good to see you. Do you know that they have detected that it's impossible to actually fake smile that when you actually smile, there are muscles in your eyes that move, and they will only move if it's genuine. Everyone's going to be looking at each other's eyes, right? Your eyes move. You're faking that smile. That if you just smile, there are muscles in your eyes that will not move voluntarily. It's an involuntary process. It's not something you can fake, and we're not supposed to fake it. And this is... You know, that was the problem with the Pharisees, right? They were putting on a front. They were faking it. And that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to fake it. We're called to actually be genuine. And so Paul recognizes this. And to walk in this spirituality, we need to, instead of pretending, we need to practice. Okay? It's something that we have to daily practice we have to actively practice we have to practice taking care of other people we have to practice it's not faking if we're practicing you know when you hear revel sing and you go oh man that sounds wonderful so much control in his voice he had to practice i don't decide i'm gonna sing like revel Next next Wednesday, I'll sing, okay? And I'm going to just get up here and, you know, it's not going to happen. I'm going to have to practice. I, I can't just decide, you know, next week I'm going to be a classical guitar player. You have to practice. If you don't practice it, you, you don't get to perfect it. And the same thing is true with our lives. You don't fake like you care someone, but you can practice caring for people. And what you find is as you start practicing, you start actually getting better at it. It actually starts becoming more genuine. You actually find it something that takes hold of you. You know, you start loving people and pretty soon all you have is love for them. And it's something that's happened with me and the things that we've done. It's happened with me in Mexico, the times that we go to Mexico and the things that we've done in Mexico I've fallen in love with the people there. There's a group of people and I just see them as my family. 
and, and I love them and I see them in a, a whole different light. It's happened in Haiti, our work in Haiti. I see those kids and I just love those kids. I'm a sucker for those kids. They look at me those eyes and it's like, what do you want? Here's my wallet. You know, I just, what can I do for you? You just want to help them. Why? Because you start to help them and pretty soon you, you actually get good at it. And that's what we're being called to do. So instead of just, you know, face it, fake it until you make it, the approach is to practice until you master it. Practice until it becomes natural. It becomes a new habit. It becomes automatic. Pretty soon, your fingers just move there. Why? Because you've rehearsed those scales over and over again. Pretty soon, your voice goes there because you have the voice memory. Pretty soon, your heart goes there because you have the heart memory because that's what you started to practice. And we're being called to this. The purpose of having a practice is to move into this reality of faith. I want the balance to be even. I want to be consistent. So I have to practice the life to have a consistent life with the God I believe in. I want it to be evident. I want it to be real. And so the practice of it brings it into the reality so that faith is now a reality in my life and it can be seen. It's not just something I I talk about. It's not just something I do on a Sunday or when I go to a church. It's something that is a part of my life. That's living our lives, walking in a way worthy. I'm practicing. I'm, I'm putting it into motion. And now the scripture hasn't been constructed in an imaginary world. It's been revealed to the real universe, and it consists of more than just four dimensions. But to see this as well as Paul did, it takes practice. This faith isn't just one day in the by and by when I die. No, my faith has substance. Why? Because I practice it. Because I am patient. Because I am gentle. Because I am bearing and tolerant with people in love it's my practice and now my faith becomes seen it becomes tangible it becomes real something that i can hold on to something that other people can hold on to i think it's remarkable that the practice that paul wants us takes us to other people our spiritual progress is directly related to the way we treat other people. And I think this has been, at least in my experience, where so much of Christianity has missed the boat. Spirituality is about how much you know. Oh, wow, you really know the Bible. Wow, you're really spiritual. Oh, you really, you know, pray a lot. Oh, you really read. Oh, you really have great devotions. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But Paul connects spiritual progress and growth to how we treat other people. That's what John said, right? First John, how can you love God who you haven't seen and not love your brother who you see? It's not about having visions of God. I see angels. I have these incredible, you know, epiphanies. It's about loving people that we can see. And in this way, showing love to the God that we can't see. It's in our daily interaction with other people that our 
Faith and spiritual growth is tested and challenged. Can I become a better person without becoming a different person? No. If I'm going to become a better person, I have to be a different person. Can I become a different person without adopting different practices? No, not likely. See, if I want to be a different person, then I I have to take on different practices. If I want to be a better person, then I have to do things that are going to make me a better person. If I want to be a better whatever it is I want to do, I have to take the steps to do those things. I always tell the people when I do the dog training, okay, you have to practice this because nothing changes if nothing changes. And it sounds obvious, but again, we live in a time where, well, I thought about it, so I guess it's true, right? Well, I thought about God today, so I must be closer to God. Yeah, but look at what you did. If you don't adopt different practices, you stay in the same position. And so Paul is pushing us to become different people by putting into action different practices, by being people who are humble, people who are gentle, people who are patient, people who bear with one another in love. Those are putting those things into practice. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So now he comes to this place of unity and he wants us to recognize and the unity, the answer to this, what is the unity, lies in the word one. How many times he says the word one here at this point. But we have a hard time grasping the idea of unity. Do you guys know how many churches there are in Upland? There's only one. Right? There's only one church. Well, we meet in different buildings. We have different styles of worship. But there's only one. But that's not our prevailing thought process. That, that's not the way we think. And the things that we have in common as followers of Christ outweigh the differences. And this is true in so many areas of life. If you were to take two people from the United States on on different specters of our cultural reality, you take a Confederate flying flag redneck guy from the down south, and you take a black activist from Chicago, and you put them both together and drop them in Uzbekistan. They are going to have more in common with each other than they do anyone in Uzbekistan. It doesn't matter if all those people are white. They don't speak the language. They don't have the same currency. They don't like the same foods or even the same general style of foods. 
And the same thing would happen if you dropped them in the middle of Africa somewhere. You see, they have more in common. They wouldn't realize it until you change their environment and put them in a place where they started to have to see, you're the only person I can talk to. If we're going to get out of Uzbekistan, we got to work together. Because you know what I mean when I say I'm thirsty. No one else has an idea what that means. You know what I mean when I say I don't want to eat something that's still moving. No one else knows what that means. And even though there are so many differences, they fail to see all the things that are really in common. And Paul is trying to to help these people who, at this time, the Jewish people brought in their Jewish traditions, the Gentiles, which is the rest of this world, in all their ways, helping them to see you really have more in common because of Christ you have really been made into one humanity. And Paul wants us to guard that unity. He wants it to be important to us because if it's not, it'll start to collapse. And that's really what we start to see happening here. We find one in these verses over and over again. It's the point where the two or more lives are linked by a single factor. And notice he starts with one body. He jumps from this idea of unity and lists the begin, one body. He has already made the connection between the church and the body of Christ. He did it in chapter one. And also in chapter two, he demonstrated how Jesus has made us into one humanity. But every follower of Jesus in every place, in every period of history, belongs to this universal community of faith. Do you think the church today looks anything like the church did at the time Paul was writing this? The way we do things? Totally different. But we're still one body. We, we focus on the differences. They used to meet in homes. We meet in buildings. They, they didn't, you know, do things this way. Well, now we have, you know, music and we have stages and we have lights. They didn't have all those things. But we had the same things when it came to the body of Christ and who we are. And it's important to recognize that. You know, when people see the things they have in common, they gravitate to them. There are people who collect stamps, why? Who collects stamps? But if you're here, okay, sorry. Good for you. You, you. you probably know other people who collect stamps. Grandpa Bob collects stamps too sometimes. So, you know, when you find someone who, who does those things, you are drawn to them. And pretty soon you talk about, oh, do you have the 1947 Mickey Mouse stamp or whatever it is? I don't know. You know, you start to be drawn to the things that you have in common. I mean, it happens in, in so many areas. I mean, people do it with stamps. People do it with sports teams. Uh, people do it in foods. You know, you can have people who do it with cars. They have car clubs. I mean, you name it. People are drawn together, and they want to have these interests that brings them together. And, and even so, 
A bond is formed when we discover that we share membership in Jesus. And maybe you've experienced that. I know I have, even in other places of the world. I've experienced that a little bit with Jeannot, you know, over in Haiti. There are things about him that I'm just drawn to, and I have a, a, a really appreciative understanding of all the things that he does, and I see him as my brother, even though he's in a different country, even though he's part of a different church. I see a commonality that's there that makes us this one body. He he then goes on to say one spirit. Notice now it moves inward. One body, you see the outward, one spirit, and it moves inward. And we can see the body, the church community, but we don't see the spirit. The spirit is the life of God within us, individually and collectively. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us, 1 John 3.24. The Spirit is our invisible connection to God, tells us that in Romans chapter 8. When I discover the Spirit is in you too, I recognize you as family, as my sister, as my brother. Now, if you have siblings, you know that you're from the same family, but you probably got on each other's nerves at one time or another. You probably had fights. You probably have disagreements. You might not like the same clothes, same food. There are things that are different, but your family. And you recognize that. Do we recognize that in people, that they can have differences in how they do things, the way they do things, why they do things? But they're still part of our family. The one spirit that lives in both of us forms the bond between us. He then talks about one hope. This is also a hope that we have in this life and it carries us through everything that we face. It's the hope that even now God is preparing us for a future with him, that he who has begun something good in me will perfect it in me. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that about others? You believe, oh, God's going to work in my life and bring me out to do what's good. Well, do you believe that in that other person who is spiritually connected in us through Christ? See, I'm having a a dialogue with someone right now. They, They sent me a book and they said, I want you to read this book. And this book basically slams a lot of the things that I believe. And they know that it does that. That's why they sent it to me, because they wanted to get my opinion on it. They really wanted me to see what they're saying. And as they start to, you know, I start reading this book, my first thought was, oh man, this just makes me mad. I know why they're giving me this, because they wanted me to see this, and they wanted me to do this. And I started writing back to them. And I, I, man, my first draft, don't ever send the first draft, by the way. My first draft was pretty heated. And I was like, what about this? And what about this? And then I had to stop and and I just said, wait a second. You know, God is very patient with you. Are you going to be patient with them? Are you going to see and address them as someone of value or are you just going to try and prove them wrong? 
And so I had to rechange. I scratched the whole first one. I'm on my third draft right now. Because I keep changing it. Because I really, what I want to do is convey the importance that we have places to grow. This is how I see things. I know this is how you see things. This is why I see things. But to do it with patience. To do it with gentleness. To do it in humility. And so we have to recognize that because we're one family, we still have the one hope. God is working in them just like he is working in us. He is, he is healing us, making us whole, transforming us. He's doing the same with them. And then he goes on and he says, one Lord. And when he says one Lord, Paul is referring to Jesus. A rough way to say this is that we receive our orders from the same commander. That we all conform our lives to one will, to his will. And Lord is not a term, again, that we use, but what it's telling us is that we have allegiance. It's a spiritual conversion and it includes the change of allegiance. I was once an allege to this part or this type of life, but now my allegiance is to the Lord. It's connected to him. No longer do I follow the herd or live by you know the programming, but I'm going to live according to what he wants. And it's always struck me, and it's probably my rebellious attitude, when Jesus you know, would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? That just irks me. I'm telling you the truth. You know, what? I have to do everything you say? That's my position. But then that's really the conclusion, isn't it? Living accordance to one will, one Lord forms the bond that's supposed to be there. That's right. Why do I call you Lord? If I don't listen to you say, then I'm contradicting what the word means. And so we are to live in accordance with this one will. He then goes on and he says, one faith. And Paul didn't mean a doctrinal statement. When he says one faith, some people, you know, check for these things. And we, we definitely share core theology, but even that is interpreted differently by different groups at different times. In fact, it's really interesting looking at the differences of how people interpret scripture over the centuries, and it's fascinating. We think everything is so black and white. But I have grown, I think, in my understanding of Scripture over the last five years. I hope to grow more in five more years. And so there is this definite core of belief, but it's not just about a doctrinal statement. It helps us to fill out our understanding of God. He is greater than all the concepts and things that we think about. If our trust is in Jesus, then we all share this in common. And it's the one thing that he wants. He wants us to trust him. It's the one thing that we can give him that he can, cannot give himself. And that's our trust. God doesn't demand or, or make us trust him. It's the one thing that we can give. It's our hearts. It's our wills. That's the, the thing that is unique to us, and that's what God wants, but it has to be something that we give. The only way to complete the journey in Christ is through trust. 
your experiences of trust and mine are more similar than our beliefs. And I think that's important. That the similarities of our trust and need for Jesus are more similar than our actual beliefs. I've always felt that this is the key to to Christian faith. This is what separates Christianity from really every other religion. And it's how God deals with our brokenness. Every other system of faith, it's about how you can get to God. It's about what you have to do to get to God. But then you come to this Christian faith and God says, you're broken I will come to you and I want you to trust me. Where we say, God, I'm messed up. I I can't be good enough. I will trust you. And that's where we are the same. I can't be good enough to earn God's favor. I, I can't be good. I, I know the difference between right and wrong and I still choose wrong. I can't be good enough for myself. And my mind is tainted. It's skewed to think of myself better than I do. I'm in trouble. And then there's Jesus. And now I have trust in what he did. And that brings me hope. Sharing this life of trust and finding God faithful forms or should form a bond between us. Do you trust Jesus for your life? Yeah, me too. Do you speak in tongues and roll on the floor? No, I don't do that. I do. Okay, that's cool. Do you trust Jesus for your life? Yeah, me too. We're the same. Your family. You just eat weird foods. But we're still family. And that's important. He then goes on and says, one baptism. This is recognized as the central rite of initiation. The concern here is that we all entered the, the life of God through the same door. That's what the idea of baptism is. We all had to recognize our lives dead to ourselves, but alive again to God. This also forms a bond between us. It says, one God and Father. Again, we look back at all these chapters, 1, verse 2, and chapter 3. Paul's reference is God as Father and Jesus as Lord. We are children who belong to the same Father, but the Father belongs to the children as well. Notice Paul shifts then from the one's to the alls. After he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in all, we cannot find God. If we don't find God everywhere, we won't see him anywhere. We need to recognize that God is at work everywhere. A huge piece of Christian spirituality is looking for the face of Jesus everywhere, to see that God is postured and working and trying to reach everybody. Remember, the whole idea of what Jesus had done, it blew the mind of the the Jewish leaders because 
God was being so gracious to the rest of the world. God was being kinder than they had imagined, more gracious than they had imagined. He had opened the doors to the Gentiles. And Jesus was saying, God has been here. God has been reaching them all along. You just didn't see it. And so we need to recognize that it is overall and through all and in all. In deserted places, in the lowliest people, sharing this one father. I know, Mary, can I share the story you told me Sunday about the homeless guy? Okay, because if you said no, I don't know what you're going to do now. Mary was waiting to go to work, and as she was there, there was this guy who was homeless who came walking up to her, and he said, hi, you know, and she's like, hi, and she's like thinking, okay, open up so I can go in, you know, into the store, and then the guy stopped, and it was almost like he got this word from God, and he told her that she needed to be careful what she said, and to be careful how she acted, is that right? And when he said that, it was resonating so much with what Mary was going through at that time and it, what she was going to go through that it came back to her mind. Okay. Here's a homeless guy coming up to her off the blue and gives her kind of this divine word. God is over all, through all, and in all. Does, do you think God can do that or don't you? Do you see God speaking to you through different ways or, or no? He can't do that. He can't speak through homeless guys. No, God can't speak to those people or through those people. They're, they're not Christians. What about the Magi? Here were people who worshipped the stars and they were looking for the false God, but they found the real one. God is over all, through all, and in all. And God is able to use the lowliest people to those who are in the highest places. And unless we are working to maintain and defend and develop this unity, if, if we don't consciously make an effort to recognize these things and hold on to them, then we will end up demolishing these things that Paul is teaching and these things that Paul is wanting to establish. We're going to stop there. I was going to try and go to verse 10, but I, I don't think I can. Uh, and so... Paul talks more about unity in his writings than he does about justification or sanctification combined. Think about that. Paul talks about the people of Christ being unified more than he talks about how people should get saved and how people should live as Christians. More about unity than justification and sanctification combined. How far we've fallen. How fragmented we are. 
And what Paul is doing here is he's helping us to hold on to things that can unify us. Things that can help us. And, and it starts, again, with those things, how we perceive other people. Being completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with other in love. And so let's make a practice of those things. Let's pray. Father, I've been so challenged by these words, and I pray that we all are. I pray that we make the changes necessary in our lives to to live consistent with what we know you want us to be, with the God that you are. And Lord, may our faith have this kind of substance. May, may our faith be connected to how we treat other people. May the people who are the furthest from us, socially, economically, racially, the people who would be considered the most distant, Lord, may they see our faith as we draw near to them because you are near to them. And Father, may that be something that resonates in us as a community, Lord, that all people would know we belong to you because of how we love each other. Lord, bless everyone here. I thank you again for our time together. I pray it would be enriching, Lord, throughout this week that we would think on these things and they'd be useful to us. I do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.